Hello there and welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Sarah from Sarah Ferruya Coaching and this is the Legends Podcast. I believe there are many, many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories and I want to tell them and share them. These legends are a collection of people who I have found during my 20 years in Tokyo and before. All of them are brilliant people. And when I became bored with reading another billionaire's biography, I thought I want to tell the stories of the people who I meet who are absolutely fascinating, but you won't see on your regular podcast interview. They have overcome obstacles, both systemic and internal, and we cover all kinds of things from creativity, grief, racism, business, disaster, loss, trolling, infertility, farming, eating disorder, eco-feminism, and more. We have elite athletes, people who live on Zen temples in remote parts of Japan, BBC newscaster to Taekwondo champion. Please enjoy these amazing stories from what they've overcome, from what they've built, from what they've created, from the way that they talk. I'm just delighted thinking about it. So please get stuck in and enjoy this next legend. Hello, 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 everybody, and welcome to this, the Legends Podcast Season 5, the Very Fucking Creative Series. Today, I have a dear friend and an incredible artist who is based in just south of Tokyo, and please can you all welcome Marcellus Neely. Hi, Marcellus. Um, I believe there are many ways to lead a life, and everybody has stories, and today mm -hmm. we are going to listen to the incredible stories of Marcellus Neely, a 30-year resident of Japan. So, Marcellus, my first question to everybody is, could you tell us a story that's had some kind of influence or impact on you? Oh, that is a tough question because there are many stories that have had a great impact on my life from my time as a child, my time first coming to Japan, my time trying to survive in Japan past the honeymoon phase. Mm -hmm. And then even now, as I am today, you know. Uh, well, this is a story, and I'm going to tell this again, even though I told it before to Amanda, who mm -hmm. did a previous podcast about me. Mm -hmm. But I'm telling the story again because this really was a powerful story in my life and something that really transformed me completely. And that was a story of, of when I was in high school, uh, there was a girl who I really liked. Her name was Corey. But we were like kids, so we didn't really like know how to like romance each other. You know what I mean? Yes. We each liked each other, but we didn't really, nothing came of it. Like we didn't become boyfriend and girlfriend. We just hung out together all the time, you know. And uh, this girl, she was very, very creative. She was always writing poems, always drawing stuff, making her own songs. And one day she's like, hey, Marcellus, do you want to hang out downtown with me? Uh, we're, we're, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, by the way, mm -hmm. which is in the United States, uh, northeastern part of the U.S. And I'm like, yeah, cool. Let's hang out downtown. And at that time, I was playing saxophone in the high school band. And she's like, bring your saxophone. I was like, oh, OK. And so I took my saxophone with me. That day, she took me to all these different places around Cleveland that I had never noticed before and could only see through her sort of twisted eyes in a sense. And I, I don't mean twisted in a negative way, but twisted in they have transformed the normal way of looking at things 
and they have twisted them into her special way of looking at them. For example, she took me to the Cleveland Public Library, which is a place mundane, full of books, people quiet, shh, everywhere you go. And she had found on the top floor of the library that there was a window that you could climb out of and we could sit on the roof beneath that open window and watch the city go by. And that was, it was mind blowing to me because I had never done anything like that or experienced anything like that, even in my imagination, you know? And uh, so we had a day like that. And then we were walking after we left the library and suddenly she stopped and said, right here, this is the spot. I'm like, okay, the spot for what? And she's like, take out your saxophone. You're going to play here. And I was like, no, I'm not. Are you you crazy? No. And she's like, okay, give it to me. I'll play. She puts it together. She honks out these notes. It sounded horrible. So I was like, give it to me. I'll play something. Mm -hmm. And something happened to me in that moment, which has completely shaped my life until this moment. Mm. And the thing that happened was a kind of transformation. When I began to play the saxophone, everything around me, all awareness disappeared. And the only thing that existed in all of the universe in that moment was me, her, and the sound of that horn. And it sounds like an exaggeration, but this is very real. It was like I had been teleported or something, you know. And I played and played and played until I ran out of ideas to play. And when I stopped, I instantly was flashed back to the world. And I noticed that there was a family who had gathered in front of me. And they're like, oh, that was really good. Can you play another song? And because I had noticed them, I became nervous. I became too self-aware. And I could not play anymore. I tried to play. It sounded like crap. So I got mad. I'm like, Corey, what the hell? Why are you bring me out here? I told you I didn't want to play. You made me play. You embarrassed me in front of these people. And she put her hand on my shoulder and she said to me, Marcellus, don't you understand? The artist creates for himself. And those words had a kind of profound impact on my life because it had made me instantly aware of the idea that creation comes from our need to create or our desire to communicate in that way. It came from interdimensional spaces and other worlds. It came from trying to understand our own existence and had absolutely nothing really to do with how the world perceives it. Well, it does. It does. I mean, you know, as artists, we do want to be praised for our work or we want to get recognition. But the beginnings of that creation come from this desire that I just described. And so if we think of the idea of the people first, then it ultimately destroys this urge to create. And so that was the kind of lesson that I learned from that moment. It had a massive impact on my life. Mm. And from that very second until this very second, I've been sort of trying to live up to that, to that credo, as it were. So that's my story. Wow, that urge to create. I absolutely love it. I mean, there's so much stuff. I've made so many notes already on here, but um, that kind of all awareness disappeared. I was watching your performance, some of your performances last night, and I've actually seen you playing live with Sam Bennett's band. What's that band called? The Amazing Flying Machine? Amazing Flying Machine, that's right, yeah. 
and and actually you do look like you're in the grip of something genuinely transformative and transported there like it's not a performance it is a performance but it's not a performance and I think that's a really incredible it's like we love to write poetry but we also want like to edit it right or we love to write something and then we like to go back and reword some things or make sure that the beat's right or something like that it's not that it's completely just that organic thing is is that what you're trying to say as well a little bit of that with the with the amazing flying machine and the sort of style of performance i learned long ago that if i try to memorize and perfect a set of lyrics then it automatically cut me off it, it automatically cut me off from from the source ah. of all things which is what i was looking for you know uh-huh. the performance for me in all honesty was an exercise in searching for a door that I could open at will. And that door was the door back to that interdimensional transformation that I have first experienced with Corey. I wanted to be able through free verse and using inspiration as it hit me to sort of use that to elevate myself to a sort of, to, to a higher consciousness and be able to return to what I theorize is my true form or my true self, uh, the self before being encased in skin and bones. I know this all sounds trippy and really new agey, but this is exactly what I felt and why, in fact, I was doing those performances. It was the search for that ability to be able to turn that on at will. Oh, you're in exactly the right place here. We talk about the magic when people seem to be ready we start talking about the magic we always say let it be huge let it be huge that's from my uh partner Gretchen who who we do a lot of work together and the other thing that I was put in mind of there was oh so that transformation as well all awareness disappears I've experienced that a couple of times in my life but one was singing uh, Mendelssohn I think in German in Rikyo University with the British Embassy Choir where I felt exactly what you just said like you said something about being teleported. I felt like I was going to take off. That's how whatever was happening there was happening. Everything was so, it was almost frightening. <laughs> it's, oh it my God, crazy. I've never been afraid though. It's, it's, oh. it's like, it's like what it feels like to prop, what it probably feels like to die. And you're like almost ready to step into the light. You know what I mean? Oh, or to have a baby. Fighting. <laughs> I haven't had one. You haven't birthed one, <laughs> but yeah. okay. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. And the other thing I'm putting in mind of here is just on a very practical notion on a coaching notion is Corey is like a mentor or a guide. And it reminds me of the, I don't know if you're familiar with Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, kind of sure, sure, sure. a little bit of that. And it's when you, that guide shows up and kind of, and you use the word door, like opened one of those doors And it's so important to have these guides. Oftentimes on these conversations, we talk about access that could be financial access or uh, privilege access or educational access or access to people who are a few steps ahead of you. Um, But she gave you access to something and thank God. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I think, well, yes and no, thank God. Yes, thank God, because it allowed me to live a most magnificent life. But no, thank God, because it also 
led to a very poor life <laughs> in terms of finances yeah. <laughs> for, for a while, a while, yeah. <laughs> you know, but yes, she, she was a guide. And just one thing I'd like to add to that comment that you made in that is I think guides come to us all the time. I agree. But we have to sort of be able to stop and recognize them when they come. And we also have to sort of overcome our own fear, I guess it is. Because in that moment with Corey, my fear was embarrassment. My fear was, this is going to sound like ass. I don't want to do this, you know. Instead of giving myself to the moment and allowing myself to be there with her and have that experience, you know. And so I'm glad that she took the saxophone and sounded so horrible that I thought I can never sound worse than this. (laughs) And so... She allowed, yes, you're right. She guided me towards that door and helped me to get through it, you know. <laughs> wow, humble ourselves to our guides. And also I had to laugh there at the phrase, it, I was afraid it was going to sound like ass. <laughs> such a great phrase. But also just humbling ourselves to our guides and to the, uh-huh. I mean, embarrassment uh, in, my, in my experience as a coach is a huge blocker for many people. Self-consciousness, sure. embarrassment, fear of being seen. And P.S., Hashtag me too. Um, me so, too, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, so all of the people that I interview are my guides too. And uh, watching the stuff that you were talking about last night, Corey has now become one of my guides. She's in my system now. And, of course, you too. Thanks, Marcellus. That's such a brilliant story and just so much juice in there. Amazing. So um, I would like to now just give um, you your rock star introduction. Um, this is taken from the book Umoja, which we will talk about later as well. Uh, for those of you who aren't watching the YouTube, I'm just holding up the, this amazing book of poetry and we'll talk about this later. So Marcellus, although he has been writing poetry since he was eight years old, Marcellus found his poetic voice in the mid-1990s on a small stage in Tokyo at the popular British pub, What the Dickens, shout out to John Coyle. So from there, he dove full on into the world of spoken word. He is the winner of several international poetry slams. He has been invited to perform globally at well-known events like the Montreal Jazz Festival, Heineken Green Room Festival Singapore and the globally televised charity event Live 8, which over 1 billion people viewed. He also made several appearances on the highest rated Japanese television show Kohaku Utagasen with Japan's most legendary pop band Dreams Come True. I mean, they are huge over here. I just want to be very, very clear here. Dreams Come True are like the Carpenters or something. They're that big. He spent an eight-year residency with the band as a lyricist, rapper, spoken word performer, and background vocalist. He is also an accomplished photographer who has won several awards, including a top prize in Ron Howard's Imaginate Global Photo Contest, sponsored by Canon. Currently, Marcellus works as a narrator and announcer for NHK and holds the position of Associate Professor of English at a prestigious university in Tokyo. Wow. <laughs> I don't know who that is. <laughs> I know it's I, I love you. I mean, this is your own, this is your own thing, but I also want to add to this a fun fact about Marcellus and I and how we met. So Marcellus and I met, and this is through performance. And I suppose you could let's we could we could put this in the margins of creativity, maybe, because it is both of our um love of singing and performing that brought us together. Um we were in a children's show 
and we were Mr. and Mrs. McDonald on Old McDonald's right. Farm. <laughs> and uh, we had to wear dungarees that were too small for us. We both of us. Yeah, that was hilarious. Big people. <laughs> Wasn't it like dungarees? Did I also have like a big bow tie or something like that? Yes. I can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> big bow ties, dungarees that were like skin tight, like katsu. Yeah. And um, we were doing these shows for kids to learn English through one of the biggest publishing companies here. I was working for the company who had the kind of uh, job of overseeing that project. So I also oversaw the project and you were one of our talent or one of our talents. Yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> and if I oh remember God. rightly, that corporate training company that I worked for, you also went on to do some corporate training for them as well. So there was there was lots of different ways to to work within. And that I also went on to work for the company that we did the shows for, for maybe about four years or so. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. What? What? In a different guise or in those shows? In a different guise. I became yeah. a consultant for the. They were building a uh, online education program. Wow. And so I, they hired me to consult with that, to train the, the overseas staff and to help uh, with quality management. Yeah. It was well, pretty... And it just goes to show the kind of multi-hyphenate portfolio careers that some people build over here. You know, some people take a more kind of salaried route and some yeah. of us take this kind of patchwork approach to our work and kind of um, follow the planned happenstance, planned happenstance being ready for the opportunities as they arrive. So you go from wearing dungarees and singing old McDonald's to being spotted as somebody who could do something else for that organization. It's yeah. uh and watching out for those guides and those opportunities as they pop up as well, Marcellus, that's pretty interesting. You know, it's how I survived because I was born into a family that pretty much had absolutely nothing. Uh, a lot of poverty, hunger. Uh, oh. I was able to go to college purely by chance. Again, another, another happenstance moment. My friend's his girlfriend, her father was in charge of recruiting students to the university that I went to. Mm -hmm. And just by coincidence, he invited uh, my friend invited me to go to their house for dinner with his girlfriend. Uh, the father's like, oh, so you look like a bright young man. Did you think about going to college? I'm like, I can't afford college. What are you talking about? No, I, I, I'm not. I don't think I'm going to go. He's like, that's that's such a waste. I'll tell you what, if you come to our college, I'll find the funding for you. And it was bizarre in the sense that that was the first time that he had ever met me. But he made that offer and he stood by the offer and kept it throughout the entire time that I was a university student. Uh, it was just a magical moment in my life. It's actually full of those kind of magical moments in a way. Me too. And so it was another guide leading me to another door that eventually led me here, you know. Mm. Another guide leading to another door that eventually led you here. So, it, you know, tell us a little bit more about your life in Cleveland, Ohio. And, and I just, I'm so pleased you identified that guide and mentor thing. It's a theme. It's kind of a golden thread that's running through here as well. And it reminds me also of a previous podcast I had with Lisa Lowitz. Do you know Lisa who run the Sun and Moon Yoga Studio? I don't think I know her don't personally, know her. but I've heard of her, yeah. Yeah, yeah. She's she's you know, she's a long termer like yourself, similar age to us. And um, you know, she was also saying that somebody 
recognized something in her, plucked her out and then sent her on the next part of her, you know, opened that door for her. And it wasn't even a door that they went, here's, here's some funding or something. It was like, you could do this kind mm-hmm. of thing. It was that access to, I think her friend's mum was an artist or something like that. And she was like, oh, I, this is a thing. So it's just so cool, isn't it? So tell us a bit more about life in Cleveland, Ohio, and your uh, your background. I've seen some of the photographs of your early days, and I can. You're always like, "Can you spot me?" And I'm like, "No." <laughs> I don't know <laughs> yeah, why you look so different. <laughs> what I see now, and what are in those photographs? Well, so uh, well, I'm I'm not young anymore. That's one reason why I look different, and maybe I've gained about thirty kilos or whatever. <laughs> you know, you're in good company. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, life in Cleveland, Ohio was, uh, it started a a bit rough. Uh, I'm one of four children Mm -hmm. who my mom raised by herself. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were like super poor, uh, even by American. People say Americans aren't really poor when you compare them to third world countries. But we were pretty close to the third world level poor, you know, sleeping on, on, uh, blanket on the floor living in buildings where the paint was peeling off the walls and there were holes in the floors uh going for days and days without eating i I passed out on the bus on the way to school several times because i was just really hungry you know uh it was that level of poverty that we were living through and when i was a child i couldn't really understand why what what the hell mom step it up mom you know but now as an adult i realize you know she sacrificed so much to raise four children by herself she gave up her dream to go to college she gave up everything just to take care of us you know and she was doing the best that she could uh ah speaking of my mom eventually she did live her dream of going to college wow uh and she graduated the same year that i did uh, so she went when she was like 40 and graduated at 44. Uh, she's 22 years older than me. So she had me when she was 22, my brother when she was 20. And then she spent the rest of her years working as a social worker, helping helping other people who are in need and uh, making sure they get the support that, that helps them get through life, you know. Wow. What a legend. What's her name? Her name is Patricia. Shout out to Patricia. <laughs> well, that's a really incredible story. Um, so that was sort of like the, the backdrop of my life in Cleveland, uh, growing up through that, living in a ghetto. And that was sort of the time when I first also had my my poetic moment, the one that I remember, you know, it was like walking through Cleveland, eight years old, through the ghetto, trash everywhere, windows boarded up, buildings crumbling down. But I noticed above me, there was the most beautiful sunset I had ever seen. It was like strawberry swirls in the, in the blue Hawaii sky. You know, it was, it was, that's how it looked as an eight-year-old. And it was so, so, so beautiful that I remember having this poetic feeling, this poetic, poetic moment, you know. And I think that also was another opening of another door, you know. Yeah, it's funny. I, you know, some people will walk down the road and think that's nice, and other people will walk down the road and have this kind of download of, <laughs> of words and feelings and thoughts no. and, and so on. Um, beautiful. And so, this gentleman who kind of encouraged you to go to college, what do mm-hmm. you think he saw in you? And do you ever see that in other people? 
Um, I think he saw the potential for wasted potential. Okay. And he did not, he was the type of person who did not, he could not stand that. So he's like, what the hell are you talking about? You're not going to go to college. That's a waste. And so I have, I'm in a position to be able to prevent that waste. And here's some funding. I'll find some more. And he, he lived up to his word till the end, you know, there's a sad, sad story about him. Mm. Uh, eventually he became in charge of diversifying the university that I went to because at that time there were like a handful of students who were not white basically so black students hispanic asian you could count all of us on the fingers of both of our hands you know yeah and he also thought that that was not there was something wrong with that so he went on a crusade to change that and he did he did a great job he diversified the student body helped to diversify uh, the staff but eventually the new generation of students uh, and he also got the title of president of know, multicultural affairs or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then the new generation of students who had no idea the struggle, the work, the sacrifice that he went through to build a road that allowed them to be able to attend the university, they started to say, you know, what the hell is a white dude doing, an old white man doing in charge of uh, multicultural affairs? Mm-hmm. And so the university fired him and mm -hmm. hired someone else. And mm -hmm. that broke my heart because I just thought, wow, you guys are so fucking clueless. You have no idea what you're talking about. You know, this is ridiculous. He he did a lot for so many people. And this is how you treat him, you know. So, yeah, I'm, that was a divergence of the main story. But um, it, what's your thoughts about that, Marcellus? I mean, it's it's such a thing that's so close to my heart and my eyes. The scales have fallen from my eyes, especially in the last year slash three years. But yeah. um, and when I say they've fallen, I mean some of them, because I can only ever be in this body. But sure. um, what do you make of all that? All that. I thought that first of all, it made me incredibly sad again because I saw it as a great injustice. Mm, he was a person, yeah, he, through his actions, he deserved to be praised and respected. But instead, he was cast aside simply because of a generation who did not understand or try to understand mm -hmm. who he was and what he had sacrificed. And I think that that's part of the climate that we're existing in now. Everybody's yeah. got this strong tribal mentality. You know, this is my group. That's your group. Black versus white, Chinese versus whoever, you know what I mean? Japanese, <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? And, and I think that it has blinded us to our shared humanity in some ways. People are now, it feels like they're seeing less of the human and more of the package that the human's been born in or the group that they identify with or the group that they're told they should see them as, you know what I mean? And I think mm. that that is a great shame. Yeah, I see you doing a lot of just um, having a lot of conversations like that. I think there's something really 
I want to say unique because I'm sure there's other people out there who who have that ability to connect at a really human level. I'm not there yet. I'm still really cross <laughs> about many <laughs> things, but um, okay. <laughs> but there's another thing in here. There's a different layer to this that I notice as well. And now that I'm in my 50s and I know you're in your 50s as well, and I'm saying that because you said that on a different podcast. So I'm, <laughs> yeah. you're willing for it to be public. 53, 53, 50, I'm yes, 50 right. just 50. So there does come an edge to some of the things that we do. And for that gentleman, maybe his time was that time. And then the system sure. kind of, and I hate that because like, you know, I always used to be, everything should be done on merit and, you know, it doesn't matter what age you are when I was young. And now I'm like, wait a second. I want my automatic respect for being old, please. <laughs> like, how, well, when did this happen? I, I I demand it. I demand that you respect me simply because I'm 50 years old. So, yeah, um, but at the same time, I think there's this sense of losing any attachment to like, especially in the kind of work that I do, which is, it's a matter of taste, actually, a lot of it's a very matter of taste or, or any kind of, like activist work that I've done or being at the forefront of some kind of group or something like that is if, unless you unplug yourself from that and let the next generation come through, you can make yourself really mentally ill actually and really unhappy. And this just reminds me of that, like that gentleman, it's there's, there's a great deal of humility in doing a lot of things for people because it's not essentially on a continuum. It may have its day. Um, sure. so, so there's two things in there. There's one very kind of more global thing where you have to hand on to the next generation with humility in your heart. Otherwise, you're going to make yourself sick. Uh, mentally. Well, it goes back to the, you know it I goes mean? back to Corey's words. It, uh, the artist, when we can substitute artists for any profession, yeah. the artist creates for himself. But in himself means for the purpose of creation or whatever it is that drives you to create. Right. So in the case of Mr. O, his purpose was to help people, to to bring about a more balanced society where there was equity for all, you know. Yeah. And that work was done. And I am a product of that. I survived literally because of the work that he did. I cannot imagine where I would be today if I had not met him and he had not helped me like that, you know. Love that. So, but at the same time, like you said, if you hang on to the prideful part of it, the I deserve this because I have done this, then yeah, you open yourself up to be cut down because who the hell is going to know what you did? Only you know really what you've done and the people who have been immediately affected by what you've done. The people who come after, they have no idea. All they see, all they saw was a wrinkled old white dude who's saying he should be in charge of multicultural affairs. Uh, so in that sense, I guess you're right. It is what it is, right? But I still feel sad for him. And on yeah. his behalf, I still feel like y'all should respect this dude. You have no idea, you young <laughs> whippersnappers. <laughs> I love that. I love that, Marcellus. Well, we'll dedicate this episode to Mr. O then. And um, it's very nuanced. And, you know, I feel personally attacked by the, uh, I deserve this. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, there's a story that I was running recently. And um, it wasn't going well. The only person it was going well for was my therapist. So, uh, 
<laughs> he's like ka-ching <laughs> uh, but I feel healed as well so thanks <laughs> thanks thanks uh, Marcellus and thanks Mr O for <laughs> for highlighting my ridiculousness and so if if we put it against the context of art then Marcellus then whatever I'm doing I'm just doing for myself in that moment for that moment in time and it's it may have a lasting effect but I don't get to own that I don't get to own that Somebody else That's gets right. to own that. And the system, in, in systems coaching, we say the system will reveal itself and every voice is the voice of the system. And the system said, your time is done now and it's time to move on. Um, but you're also the voice of the system, which says, wait a second, let's not just disregard the work that this person has done. That's right. Beautiful. I, I think that too. And I also think that doing stuff for oneself includes the desire for recognition or the desire for praise or fame or whatever. I think we have to be honest with ourselves. I agree. And, you know, why are you doing this? And once you understand the reason why, then I think doing it becomes uh, better in some ways. You know where you want to go. You know how you have to get there. And so it, there's another set of breadcrumbs that appears before you so that you can follow that true purpose. So... I think having that pride, there's nothing wrong with that. No. It's just, yeah, you got to recognize it and accept it. And you don't completely own it maybe as well. That's right. I love that. Yeah. I mean, I think in the, the kind of new age way of thinking, which was trying to follow Buddha, who incidentally was a rich man who was able to just leave his family and go off and sit under a tree. But hey, <laughs> we don't talk about that, <laughs> where we, we shouldn't have attachment to anything and external validation is X, Y, and Z having coached for many years now, I, I think actually external validation is incredibly important Absolutely. And to recognize it and to digest it and to humbly allow yourself to absorb and receive it and then yeah. move on um, and allow it to become part of you. Um, and also to, 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 to give it to other people genuinely, you know, yeah. gen- not, not in a people pleasing kind of cloying way. Although if that's what you do, then fine. That's how you survive. I'm really glad you've highlighted that. It's lovely to get a round of applause or a standing ovation or a thank you card or isn't it? Absolutely. It is very much so. Feels really good. It feels like. (laughs) 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 Not that I've ever done. Drugs, by yeah, the way. me neither. But I know the <laughs> reference. Uh, he just made a uh, he just made a gesture towards um, taking heroin through his <laughs> intravenously, <laughs> hilariously. Um, but I'd like to think it more of a pop of a champagne bottle and yep, then yep, pouring yep. it out, enjoying <laughs> it, and then we're good. We're good. We're good. We're good. And speaking of which, thank you cards. Please let me. Please let Laura know your physical address so we can send you a little thank you. All right. Uh, so. Um, also, and we'll send you a birthday card every year as well, if you give us your birthday. <laughs> so moving on then, what did you study at university and what happened next? Uh, I studied English literature. Wow. And I also minored in communication. Again, wow. from that age of eight, having that first poetic moment, I had been obsessed with poetic expression. And so English literature was a natural choice. I remember being in fourth grade reading a book of poems in class instead of paying attention. And I remember my teacher confiscating my book and never giving it back. And that just pissed me off, you know. Uh, I spent most of my childhood because I am extremely naturally introverted. Yeah. 
uh, I spent most of my childhood indoors reading. I read poetry. I used to read uh, Four Quartets by T.S. Eliot, which I really, really, really love for some reason. And uh, Shakespeare sonnets. I also loved uh, Lord of the Rings. That by, because I love fantasy and sci-fi, I used yeah. to read those all the time as well, you know. Uh, so English literature was a natural choice for me. I took English literature and then I minored in communications. And part of that minor involved uh, photojournalism. I took a photojournalism course and it was really great. And that got me further hooked into photography. I first got hooked in photography. All these things happened when I was young, right? When I was 11, the U.S. government used to sponsor career camps for poor kids, basically. So they would send us to a summer camp for a couple of weeks. Uh, and then in the summer camp, we would learn about various careers and jobs and opportunities. And one of the careers that was being taught there was photography. And so I took the photography course, fell in love immediately with photography, even though I did not see anything that I had photographed because uh, my eyes were super bad, but we could not afford to buy glasses when my glasses broke. Wow. So I was blind pretty much the whole time I was at wow. career camp, but still, I, I still loved it. And I just thought that was interesting because I remember taking a photograph of a group of kids in front of a, in front of a monkey, in front of a jungle gym or something. And I remember how blurry that photo was. But to me, it looked absolutely perfect because that's exactly the way that I saw it. <laughs> you know, uh, it was amazing. Uh, so in college, I studied English literature uh, and I also studied uh, photography. In graduate school, I studied uh, education. That was my major, adult education, actually. Mm. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's my school study experience i guess <laughs> so i'm seeing a little golden thread here as well which runs through that kind of if you can't see the results of your photography that's also a little bit like what we were talking about with mr o where you don't you don't get to get the kind of result of what you've done something along those lines it's the ultimate don't need to see the results on the other hand when you did see the result it was blurred but it was exactly as you saw it <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. What an interesting thing. And your, I mean, Marcellus's photographs are beautiful, and many of them are used in this um, uh, anthology of poetry that he's put together, Umroja, and they are gorgeous. I, I marked all the pages where your where your photographs were as well. And there's all the photographs in here that are gorgeous that he didn't take also, but he was one of the editors that we'll talk about that later. So I remember in listening and uh, doing the research that there was somebody called Shimizu-san who who had kind of encouraged you to come to Japan or had kind of piqued uh, your yeah. interest in Japan. So when did that happen? And I mean, you've been here for 30 years now, right? Yeah, pretty much. Uh -huh. Almost 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. It has been 30 years. 30 years this summer will be the 30th. I actually don't even remember the date. Mm -hmm. So I'll just say July 1st. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, she, Yosuke Shimizu was, uh, he was a Japanese student who went to my university. His father was like the vice president of some major corporation here in Japan. And they have moved to Ohio as part of his job. He didn't work for Toyota. I know they have a factory there. He worked for some other company 
I can't remember the name of the company. And uh, so I became really good friends with Yosuke. And I also became good friends with the other Japanese exchange students. Actually, I became friends with the Japanese students first, and then I met Yosuke. And the reason why I became friends with the Japanese exchange students was because there was this, this, this beautiful woman from Belize. Mm-hmm. Uh, her name was Monica. Hey, Monica, if you ever listen to this. <laughs> She's married happily now and has a beautiful family. But at that time, when I was like, what, 19 years old or whatever, I had met Monica, fell instantly in love with her. And uh, I wanted to ask her out. So I went to her table to ask her out. And she was sitting with one of the Japanese exchange students. And I just don't know why, but I felt like I cannot really ask Monica out and ignore her roommate. I I imagine she probably doesn't have that many friends. Uh, She's a foreign exchange student. So maybe I should ask her out too, you know. So I asked them both, hey, do you want to go to whatever it is that we went to, a movie or something? And from that moment, we all became instant friends. I I never got to date Monica. She actually had a boyfriend back in her home country who is now her husband. Mm -hmm. Uh, But she became a very close and dear, dear, dear friend, you know. And so did Yumi, her roommate. And through Yumi, I began to meet all of the Japanese exchange students and that's how I met Diosuke. And at the time, after meeting them and seeing, Sarah, how pure they were. They're like the most pure-hearted, like innocent feeling people I had ever met in my life, you know. Just, just radiating with this good energy, you know. So I thought, oh my God, Japan must be an amazing place. I want to I travel. I want to go somewhere. I want to I see this for myself. And so uh, I started talking about that. And also I had this idea that in order to be a more powerful artist, I needed to leave America because not that there was anything negative about America, but there was a strong American way of thinking that, that takes over immigrants too. You know, if you stay there long enough, you start to think like an American, you know? And uh, I wanted to go someplace where the way people thought was completely different. The language was different. Culture was different. Everything was like being born again. And then through that new experience, I wanted to compare it to the old experience and find the mutual threads that bind us all. The The philosopher's stone. It was my philosopher's stone, right? I thought if I could understand this, I could understand human nature itself. So I started telling people about this and Yosuke Shimizu was like, yeah, come to my house. My room is still open. Uh, you can stay there as long as you want, which actually not really because his brother didn't was not that happy that I was there. <laughs> but yeah, that's another story. And so that's how it started, you know. Uh, 1992, I came to Japan. Wow. Yeah. And so let's kind of fast forward through all that. So all this time, you've still been doing your poetry, the slam, po- uh, slam. What's it called? Slam poetry. Oh, slams. poetry slams. Yeah, yeah. I'm so I'm but so I, sweet, aren't I? How cute am I? Like a poetry slam, slam poetry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm aware of who these people are. I've even seen you perform it, but oh my god, could I yeah, be yeah, in yeah. I, The reason why I don't like that term, slam poetry, is because. 
it conjures up so many images of this sort of slam poetry. There, there's like a slam poetry. It's like a kit that everybody gets who okay. identifies as a slam poet. You know, the, the cadence of their voices yeah. are all the same. The style mm-hmm. of poetry is all kind of similar. You know what I mean? And I, I never, I never identify with that. And I actually uh, wanted to be completely far away from that as possible because I value my unique voice and my mm-hmm. individuality. And the second that I feel like, oh God, I'm starting to sound like everybody else. That's my signal that it's time to move on and do something mm-hmm. different. You know? Love it. So yeah, not, not slam poetry, just uh, no poetry as it originally existed. This poetry uh, literature was an oral tradition. And it used to be people gathered around the fire and the storyteller would share an idea or share a story. The shaman would recount in his wild-eyed dance, in his, in his mystic haze, he would recount the stories of his people or the stories of their legends and myths and, uh, and religious beliefs, you know. This is what I feel like I'm doing, you know, rather than doing a slam story slam poetry love that and you know what i love the way you just use the word legends there as well because some people think that this is i'm choosing people who i think are legends but actually it's that it's that legends and myths it's that um a story that may or may not be true that that kind of the legend of you know king arthur or the legend of the serpent of wherever it is that's what this is about and so I love that you've just picked up that. And it's really interesting. You should say, I'm just reading Marina Abramovich's um, autobiography at the moment. You know, the um, performance artist, um, the uh, uh, Serbian p- performance artist. Um, she's she's really famous. She's pretty amazing. She went off and spent ages in the desert, like six months in the desert in Australia with the indigenous people there. And the men and the women are separate. And she was just saying exactly what you said every morning. All they did all day because it was so hot was they get up in a in a circle and by age they talked their dreams out until sundown. That's that's all they did. That's really nice. I know, right? So I'm like, I mean, I already record my dreams as every time I re- remember them, but like it 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 was just one of those things where I was like, wow, what's that? And then the rest of the people who are sitting around that not campfire but round the circle act it out as the person's talking about. So I might say, and then I was in high ammo, but it wasn't really high ammo. It was more like Zushi. And then it was on a sub board and you'd be like, <laughs> you, you'd wow. be like playing it out, but it's, it, it's pretty incredible. Wow. So yeah, the oral tradition. And I think they call that dream time. Yeah. I, that makes me want to get on a plane right now and go there and experience that because I would love, love, love to sit in that circle and share oh. those stories with people. And then yeah, but the men sit separately <laughs> in oh, that yeah. circle. That's but hey, we, you know, you can create your own circle for that as well. Um, God, I'm always thinking like that. Oh, no, how can I do that? <laughs> um, really interesting. So just bring us kind of up to speed now through the Japan thing. I know you've you've had two children, one of whom is also a very talented artist now as well. I mean, their performances brought tears to my eyes. So good the drumming when they're all in the room together doing that drumming with the uh with a with a drone oh yeah 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 
Oh my <laughs> God. Anyway, that's sorry, that's that's kind of fast forwarding very far into the future. But what take us through there's so many things I want to ask you here because I know that you've made a living from your art, but also you also kind of you earn your money in order to support your artistic living as well. And we sure, were having yeah. a quick conversation about this prior to that. So I'd love to just create some kind of backdrop for that because it's an inquiry that I'm making at the moment. And especially for my clients is we were talking about like if you have inherited wealth or a sponsor or as you know, Michelangelo had a benefactor like or something like that where you are sponsored to make your arts it takes ages right making art takes yeah. ages it takes time it takes money so you like Duncan and Neil who were on previously on this series have day jobs to support your art which I think is incredibly noble incredibly and bravo if you do come from a family who if you do have a trust fund or, or something like that bravo yay go you yeah bravo no you if I actually <laughs> can right. I would be wanting to make the same kind of <laughs> ease for them but um um why don't you take us through your your journey to to now uh, so, yeah, like I said, I came to Japan in 1992. I literally had no plan. I had maybe saved up money for my part-time job, about $500. <laughs> that was it. I did not know what I was going to do. I did not have a job waiting for me, no program to plug into. I just had Yosuke's empty room. And uh, the first couple of, I'd say the first six months were very, 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 very difficult because uh, I had come to Japan just after the bubble and I was facing uh, racism. And I just have to say it. That's the way it oh, goes. So, you know? Please do say it. <laughs> you know? So like some friends had also come from college because we, a group of us had become friends with the Japanese exchange students. Uh, there was my best friend and still dear friend to this day, Vince, Vincent Black. He was a guy who introduced me to his girlfriend, whose father helped me go to college. Yeah. Uh, so he came to Japan a little bit earlier than I did. And another friend of ours, Lynn, they were interviewing. And that time, the job that you would get would be an English teacher, right? That yes. was the easiest uh, that's job. That's how I got in. Yeah. So they were interviewing, getting offers left and right, left and right. Vince, tall, blonde, handsome guy, Lynn. Shorter, blonde, uh, no young woman, like like people were just chasing after them to give them work. Uh, having come from the same exact university with almost the same GPA, the same set of credentials, I could not find any work at all. I went to so many, 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 many interviews. Uh, I was treated really badly by so many people who would literally say to me, you don't want to work here. I'm like, yes, I do. That's why yeah. I came to the interview. You know, And they're like, no, you don't. You don't want to work here. The conditions are terrible. The salary is bad. That's when, you know, they're trying to push you out the door, you know. And Marcellus, and, uh, by the way, this is not in your head because I've spoken to people since who worked for many of those organizations. They had policies in place, by the way. Well, yeah. That sorry about even, it. Yeah, that makes me feel a little bit sad, but I'm sorry yeah, about that. No, no, it's okay. So, so yeah, because of those policies. And actually, I'm glad that you told me that because it does bring a bit of 
solace in the sense that it drives you a bit insane after a while, you know, like, yeah, am I imagining this? Yeah. Yeah. No, so I haven't. went through many months not being able to find a job. And then I had to leave Japan because you only get three months to stay in the country. Right. And with the last, last whisper of money that I had from some part-time one-off gig that I did, I bought plane tickets to Korea instead of taking my return ticket back to Cleveland, Ohio. I could have gone back to Cleveland, Ohio, but I didn't want to go back a loser, you know, like my brother, like, ha ha, you, you only made it three months, you loser. I don't want to face that, you know. <laughs> I love it. Good driver. <laughs> so I was like, fuck it, I'm going to Korea. Whatever happens, happens. And so I went to Korea uh, and I had a big problem there. I stayed into some, in some place the guy told me the wrong price about calling back to Japan. I had a girl that I was seeing at the time. I wanted to call her. He forgot a zero on the price when I had to leave uh, to pay the bill. It was way more than I had in my pocket because the hotel itself was like a couple thousand yen a night. The hotel bill was like almost Ichimayan or whatever, you know. Yeah, well, a 10,000 yen. Yeah, about $100. Yeah, mm-hmm. And I had, my, I had a camera with me. At, oh, you can't see it. Oh, yeah, here you go. I had a camera with me at the time, a 35 millimeter camera, and a bunch of Koreans gathered together, and I heard camera. I was like, "Oh my god, do you want to take my camera? I can't pay. I'll pay with this," because it looked like I was about to get my life taken by a bunch of mafiosos, right? So I left there, and I walked from that hotel to wherever the bus stop was in the city. It took me like four or five hours of walking. Uh, when I got there, they had followed me all the way from there. Uh, this is part of my experience in Japan too, even though we're in Korea now. They'd followed me all the way from the hotel to that spot. And they were from the Korean mafia. One guy approached me, but I could see out of the corner of my eyes, the guy pretending to read the newspaper, another guy standing on the corner. And I see him eye signaling those guys, right? And then he walks up to me and he's like, you look like you, you need money, right? I'm like, yeah, how did you know that? And he's like, I got a job for you. And I was tempted for a half of a half of a second, but it's just not in my nature to, to be a criminal. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, you're one of the gentlest people I know. (laughs) (laughs) But I did desperately need money, you know? So I was, I just wanted to hear like what the job was going to be, you know? And he's like, he wanted me to go on the U.S. military base, buy a whole bunch of stuff that they would sell on the black market. They would make me a fake ID. And I thought, no, I can't do that because, you know, if I get caught, that'll be serious trouble. And I also imagine that they probably would not have let me go. It would have been that job, then another, then another, then another, job, and then another then, job. Yeah. And that's how I would have been recruited into the mafia. So I went to the airport. The day before my flight left, thinking I could just stay in the airport because they're open 24 hours in the U.S. They weren't. I woke up to the barrel of a machine gun and a bunch of Korean guards screaming at me in Korean. I had no idea what they're talking about, but I could guess they wanted me to get out. So, you know, uh, that was the first I never I never woke up to a gun in my face. and, And that was scary as hell, you know, and I left. I slept outside in January. It's fucking cold. 
My feet were frozen. I stayed there all night until the airport opened the next day. Then I got my flight back to Tokyo. And as soon as I arrived, they looked at my documents and the guy said, why are you here? And I'm like, I'm studying Japanese. I got Japanese friends. Uh, he was like, you just left. I'm like, I did, but you know, I still need more time. The experience just wasn't enough. They were like, follow me. And he took me to this room, very small room. And there were three or four guards in the room. And then he just started screaming at me, verbally abusing me, throwing things at me, books. I had a backpack full of books, some textbooks to study Japanese. He took them all out. He's throwing them at my head. He gives me some document to fill out as I'm writing it. He snatches it away, balls it up, throws it in my face. And he keeps screaming, why are you here? Why are you here? You're lying. You're lying. And I'm trembling. So first I pull out Mr. Shimizu, the dad, his card. He's like the vice president of some powerful company. He surely can help me, I thought. So I give him the card and they're like, he's in America. This is no good. Throws a card at me. And then that exchange student, Monica's roommate, I found her card. Yumiko. Yumi Miura was her last name. No, no. Uh, no Horie was her last name. And I'm like, call this person. She worked for Kyodo News right after okay. college. So they called the Kyodo News service, asked for her. She's like, oh, yeah, we were friends in college. You know, he's here studying Japanese. He's not a bad person. And then immediately, it was so strange, they suddenly changed. They're like, said, gather all the stuff they threw at my head, neatly piled it up, put it back in my bag, apologize and let me go, you know. I was like, that's, that was weird. So that was like the beginning of that phase of staying in Japan. So when I finally got a job interview, because one of those two friends of mine who had come, she went for an interview. She was like, I already got another offer, but I know they're looking here. So why don't you go give it a try? I went there. Uh, you know, you have to get a visa sponsorship to stay in the country, right? A company has to sponsor you. Yeah. So I say to the lady, you know, I, I would love to work here and I also need sponsorship. She's like, no, you cannot work. You won't get a sponsorship. You have to work at least three months and then we'll think about it. And I was like, I just had an ordeal at the airport a couple weeks ago. They're not going to let me back in. And she's like, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Bye. And I thought, what am I going to do? So then I said, well, how about this? In exchange for you sponsoring my visa, I'll work for you for free. And then she she stopped for a second and she's like, free? And I was like, yeah, I'll work for you for free. And so she hired me and I starved for a month and a half working for free for this English school. And of course she did sponsor my visa and eventually uh, she hired me and paid me. And then a few months after that, the company went out of business because they lost a bunch of students. And yeah, that's how it all started. <laughs> that's, oh, at least you got yeah. a visa. Oh my God. I was not expecting <laughs> like Korean mafia stories here. I mean, God, somebody yeah, needs yeah, to make yeah. a film of all this. <laughs> it was crazy. So many crazy stories and adventures. Oh my God. Uh, so I left that place. She was like, we're, we're, we're in trouble financially but can you still work for us? And I thought, I'm not working for free anymore. No. I've already, yeah. no, I need Don't money. I got to survive. So I went out interviewing. I found another company, 
run by an American. And uh, he immediately was like, when can you start? And it took me by surprise because I had gone through that whole horrible ordeal of trying to find a job for months and months. And I worked for that company. He was absolutely wonderful. His wife was a horrible human being. I'm so sorry. (laughs) She, she, she is a Japanese lady. And uh, she also was extremely, extremely racist. Wow. uh, Which was very, very strange. She treated me very horribly. She tried to fire me several times for no reason whatsoever. Just, she just suddenly says, if it were up to me, you would be gone. I'm like, why? I'm working hard. I'm doing my best. It doesn't matter. You would be gone. And her husband would come in and be like, shut up. I, I hired him. You have no power here. This is my company. And yeah, I got harassed pretty much the whole time I was there until wow. I couldn't take it anymore. And I found a job in a newspaper called the Japan Times, mm-hmm. which is where we used to go to look for jobs for English speakers, right? And the article just said MS Artist Products. And I thought, oh, that looks interesting. But it didn't say any more than that what the job was about. It just said looking for an assistant. So I, at the time of then I was working for that husband and wife company, because I was the only person who could use the computer, I somehow became in charge of making all the catalogs, making the instructional materials, books, uh, everything. I became a graphic designer, you know? <laughs> and uh, I did that for like four years. So I'm like, I could do this for a living. So I put together a portfolio, went to the first interview at MS Artist Products. And when I walked in, I saw massive posters on the wall and dreams come true and a bunch of other artists who were famous at that time. And right away, the guy said, we are a music management company. This is MS Artists, welcome. And I was like, I knew that, you know, hiding my portfolio, pretending like I knew the whole time who they were. And I had three interviews. Uh, The first one was just that guy and his assistant. The second interview scared me to death. It was like all the severe strict, stern faces of the upper management, the presidents, the vice presidents. And I was sitting in a chair. They were sitting at a long table. And I wrote everything creative that I was doing at the time on my resume. I had already started those What the Dickens Poetry Performances, uh, doing events and stuff like that. And they saw poetry. They're like, what is this? I'm like, I'm a poet and I do performances of poetry. And they're like, do some now. I was like, it's all in English. We don't care. Do it now. You know? And then I did a poetry performance and I still remember the poem. Actually, it was a poem that I, I wrote called Ode to Music. And uh, I heard that that is what got me the job. With there dreams were, come true. That's right. Yeah. There were hundreds and hundreds of people who had applied. They were only hiring one and they hired me based on that poetry performance that I, that I had done. Yeah. It was crazy. And I was the one my first job was to throw away all the resumes of the people they didn't hire. And I was like, Oh my God, they didn't hire that guy or that guy or that guy. They hired me. (laughs) You know what I mean? There's the validation. Like, woo. I have no idea. We love about a bit of that. Um, what a remarkable story. I mean, there's so much I hate, oh, I hate to use this cheesy word resilience or stick withedness or 
whatever it was that, you know, in your background or whether that allowed you just to kind of take hardship actually and, and move forward with it. Like just so little entitlement there, but also no letting people run over you as well. It's like, yeah, I'll do three months for you for free. But after that, no, we're, we're done. <laughs> or like oh, yeah. just that persistent um, nastiness and racism from the woman you were working for as well, that you were able to kind of take that on the chin, but not completely. And at least her husband was there. Well, and then this next thing where you were able company. to, yeah. sorry, say again. Even at that company, MS Artists, I suffered a lot of, of course. Uh, you know, xenophobic hardship which is yeah. the same as racism. I was the only foreign, well, there were two, me and uh, one person who was half Japanese and half American. And they really treated me badly. Yeah. Like one, because I didn't know what I was doing. Of course I didn't. I was like 26 or seven years old. They hired me. They're supposed to train me. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's uh, not how that works in Japan. Yeah. And I could not speak the language at the time they hired me. It was not a requirement, but there were a lot of people who resented it. But the most thing that they resented me for was the fact that Dreams Come True members themselves treated me differently than they treated everyone else. Oh. Whenever they were working with everyone else, it was like, oh, yes, sir. Like, you know, the Japanese work mentality, right? Yeah. Whenever they talk to me, they're like, hey, Marcellus, what's up? How's it going? How you been? You know, and people hated that. Yeah. So they started to treat me really, really crappy for a long time. I mean, I can only talk about being a foreigner in Japan. I don't know what the experience is like in other countries, but I think we have to tend to ourselves quite carefully and yeah. have very well managed and well tended to expectations of how much we find our belonging here. I know I, I know where I belong and it's not everywhere and it's not consistent and it's not across the board. And I have to be okay with that. Otherwise, again, I'll make myself mentally ill. Yeah. So, you know, um, that's really, that's really interesting. So dreams come true. Give me a highlight moment then. So you're with them for how many years? Seven, eight years? In total, I've been with them since 1996, Shut which up. is when I started working at that office 20 plus and, years uh, is that right 20 plus years yes yeah um that right? yeah. wow and so i've actually you know i've turned the tv on before and been like hey skate come here it's more sellers on the telly with dreams come true <laughs> and i'm all like woo, like feasting on the, on that association but um give me a highlight moment from that time okay so i went i started working at the company uh originally they did not know what they were going to do with me. My original job was to, to be an assistant manager for the band, which was basically another way of saying a tea fetcher, you know, like I just did whatever chores needed to be done. And I was supposed to also handle coordination, a communication between the U Japan office and the New York office. Uh, like talk. Does they have the an lawyers. international presence? They were at that time they were trying to they okay. they had gotten a new deal with Virgin Records okay. and they were supposed to release, I think, about six albums. Don't quote me on that number, though. Several okay. albums uh, in the U.S. and international market through Virgin. So they had set up an office in New York to be able to handle that, uh, handle bookings for other musicians who support the performances and the recordings, uh, handle all the business there. Right. And so my job was to like be the contact between the Japanese office and the New York office. Uh, that's easy, 
But there's other things that they would ask you to do that I just didn't know how to do. Like, for example, I didn't know the first thing about taking care of artists of that level. You know what I mean? There's like so much protocol and things you have to be careful of. Uh, Just a stupid example was one day we were all at the the Masa, Kamera Masato, he's like the leader of the band, right? We're at his house for some kind of function. All the staff are forbidden to interact with the artists and their guests. We are literally there to be servants for them, which I didn't really get, you know what I mean? So like we're there, I'm I'm in the background trying to be invisible, which is impossible, you know? <laughs> yeah, I've not been invisible for 21 years, yeah. <laughs> so like Masa is like, hey, why are you standing over there? Come over here, join us. I got this really delicious sake, why don't you taste it? You know, and me was like, yeah, Wait, wait, wait. Try it in this matsu. Matsu is like the pine wood cup. It's supposed to be really good. So I drank the sake. I'm chilling at the table. I'm hanging out with them. And the next day in the office, the boss calls me and he says, Marcellus, come here. And then he takes me into the room, closes his door and starts screaming at me. It's like, what the fuck was that last night? I'm like, what are you talking about? What did I do? And he's like, you were drinking alcohol. Why? And I'm like, because they gave it to me. What are you talking about? He asked me to drink. Uh, was I supposed to be rude and say no? And that was like my whole, the whole experience was like that. You know, the manager tried to sabotage me and make it so that I would mess up stuff on purpose. And then he would point a finger and say, look at this. That guy doesn't belong here and try to get me fired. And so Nakamura-san noticed this. And so he called me to. That's the call. artist. That's right. Yeah. So he called me to his house one day and he's like, so Marcellus, how do you like working in our company so far? And I honestly said, dude, it's hard. You know, I I think that nobody likes me. I haven't found the place where I belong. Uh, I feel a bit lost. And just before he called me, I was berated by my manager because I had the gall to ask him if I could go on the next trip to the States with them so that I could learn and observe. I was, I was like, you guys are going to America. I'm here in the office. I don't really have anything to do here. I think I could learn a lot. I'll sweep floors, serve tea, whatever you want. Uh, is it possible for me to go on the next trip? He took me to the office and he's like, how dare you? And he literally said to me, you are my dog. You wait for my command. Americans are so fucking arrogant he said that in ja- in english clears a bell and i was like oh my god it's time for me to leave i've it's been a couple of years so, the irony though of somebody shouting at you americans yeah. are so fucking arrogant you're like and hello um, yeah uh hello <laughs> anyway yeah. go ahead <laughs> so so then right after that i and i was so downtrodden at that time ready to quit trying to figure out what i'm going to do and then nakamura san calls me to his house they 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 needed help writing some lyrics in ink no no they needed help training for answering interview questions in the u.s Uh i know so i i would role play with them and i would also try to help them improve their pronunciation a little bit Mm -hmm. Uh, especially nakamura san because he wasn't that strong in english at the time he's a lot stronger in english now and uh, he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I don't have a place. I don't belong. He's like, what do you want to do? And I was like, honestly, sir, I want to 
learn the business. I want to know the ropes. I want somebody to train me, to teach me. And he said, no, this is not a school. We don't have that kind of time. And then I was like, so then I want my own thing that I can learn from while I'm doing it. And he's like, that's what I wanted to hear. So he goes in the back. He brings out a stack of of, uh, masters, we call them. Basically, they're recordings and only one of those exists of of the recording okay it's a master so he brings out the masters and he puts them on the table and says i want you to do something with this and what it was was he wanted to to do a bunch of dance remixes but nobody in the in the record label or the management would let him do it but he didn't want to give up right and he knew that i was hanging out in the clubs at that time i was doing poetry with DJs and doing events and stuff like that. Uh, and so he was like, yeah, I know you, you hang out in the clubs, do something with this. I was like, yeah, I can do that. I can do it. <laughs> and I, I took it and left the room and thought, Oh my God, what am I going to do? I don't <laughs> fucking know how to do this. You know? No, I have no idea. Well, I figured it out. I, I knocked on every door, turned to every stone up. I did everything I could to figure it out. And the first release was massively successful. We only released final records. I think I sold like 20,000 of them uh, literally by just taking the, okay. So first of all, I, I was responsible for everything, taking the masters, getting them mixed in the studio, prepared for recording, taking the recording to the manufacturer. I even designed the, jackets that the the thing went in you know using my graphic design skills from the other company and then i put them in a bag and i traveled from hokkaido to okinawa going to every single club that existed giving them one by one to every dj please play this please promote this and it was successful you know so for vinyl records that was a lot of records wow and then after that he was like oh my god you're amazing you know that was great but then we did two more releases and they were not so good just because <laughs> his thing wasn't really dance music, right? Yeah. It, it was, yeah, you know, so it sort of tapered off after a bit. But it still, I think, endeared me to him even more. And he was like, from now on, you don't work for them. You work for me. And uh, so, yeah, I started working for him, which brought more hatred from the staff. And they would not help me at all. They had all the resources, all the connections, all the materials. And whenever I asked for help, they'll be like, you're supposed to be doing this by yourself. So do it by yourself. And I was like, fuck you. I'm going to do it by myself then. Fuck you and you and you. you know. <laughs> and uh, I did it. And I'm very happy that I did it. You know, That's amazing. I'm but so- it's also so disappointing, isn't it, that people behave like that? It's like, yeah. just do your job. What's wrong with you? Really, really amazing. Yeah, yeah, and there's yeah. so much aggression that you had to put up with in this yeah. story, like whether it be in Korea or from the person at the airport or all these other people. It's just, it's pretty amazing that you've retained some kind of pureness. Well, because above all else, to thine own self be true. Oh, oh. It wasn't that Shakespeare who said that. And I don't, I don't know either. I think she sounds like something he would have said. Yeah. But I believe in that fully. I believe that the moment of my death, the last second of my death, 
I have to answer the question of, did I live my life to the fullest and to the best of my ability? And throughout this journey, I must, above all else, be able to answer yes to that question. This is, this is a fundamental belief that I have. So in order to answer yes to that question, I have no choice but to live and be true to myself. And myself is not evil. It is not mean. Myself does not shit on people for no reason other than to make myself bigger. Uh, and myself is to see all people as individuals rather than groups, to see the humanity in everyone and to love that and respect that and respect the differences that we have. And so, yeah, there were some assholes who I still kind of hate to this day. Yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, let's keep it real. <laughs> you know, not- but they did, not, they did not destroy my determination to keep moving forward. You know what I mean? And they didn't destroy your sweetness. Yeah, because that's who I am. Yeah. Oh, I love it, love it, love it. So that brings us up to date. So talking of this, I wanted to talk about this beautiful book of poetry and art and gorgeousness. Um, because I know there's many more twists and turns that happen in in and out of here. But if you could Google or go on YouTube and look up Dreams Come True, and you'll find Marcellus lurking around on stage somewhere as well. But this is Moja. I did go on and check that I'm saying that right last night. And um, this is Topojo, which is the Tokyo Poetry Journal. I've also got another book of their poetry over there, which I absolutely love. But um, Topojo Excursions, the Black Diaspora edition, edited by Marcellus Neely and Bianca Mm -hmm. Bailey. And the cover is by Augustus Browning II. It is, oh my God, I love this so much. And this is, you know, part of your your mission here. And it says here, several people have asked why Tokyo? And the simple answer is, I can't say this without my tears filling up. We are here. We are here. So can you tell us more about this beautiful book full of the these incredible, I've got it all marked up here because I have my favorite bits in it. And um, can you tell us about this project and what new open projects are coming in the future? Okay, so Moja came about because Jeffrey Johnson of Tokyo Poetry Journal was sort of in an existential crisis. He was seeing uh, basically the police brutality of African-Americans in the United States, uh, Black Lives Matter movement and the marches that were happening in protest of that the incredibly negative backlash that that had received and just all of the social turmoil that was based on race. And then he began to look at Tokyo Poetry Journal and think, huh, you know, what are we doing? Bit pale. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So then he contacted me and he's like, Marcellus, you know, I have this idea. I want to publish a book by black writers. Would you mind heading up that project? And uh, at first I was like, nah, it's going to be a bit troublesome. Yeah, I don't really know that many black writers because, I mean, how many, you know, I mean, in Tokyo, first he wanted to be black writers based in, in Japan, which how many writers that are not Japanese are there in Japan? You know what I mean? And so then we're going to narrow that down to just one finite group. Is there going to be enough material to even publish a book? That was my first worry. 
But then I thought it would be a great opportunity because representation matters. Absolutely. And so like this book gave us an opportunity to have that representation. And uh, I thought, okay, we could do this if we expanded the theme from just black writers to black writers and creators related to Japan. And then if we also expanded that further to black writers and creators in general. So the first focus was to get black writers and creators who lived in Japan or are living in Japan or connected to Japan somehow, and then open the call to the rest of the world. And that's what we did. So for three months, actually, no, for like a, uh, almost a year. Uh, yeah. We had planned Yeah, it. this looks like a, a massive undertaking, actually. Yeah, yeah. It was very massive. Uh, we put out the word through social media outlets, through websites, and got a huge amount of response, more stories and poems and artworks than we could possibly publish. And then we sort of went through them all and tried to put together a story. And and I, Bianca Bailey, she's a Jamaican poet and also a writer, a very wonderful person. She is so amazing because I'm a scattered brain dreamer and she she's very organized and very, very resourceful, you know. So this is perfect to be with Bianca, a really great honor. And I'm so happy and I hope and pray to all the goodness of the universe that she's going to be with me on the next one when it comes out, whenever that is, you know. But uh, so we put that together and we put it in a way to represent this idea of the diaspora, the diaspora. Mm. however you pronounce that word. And that what I mean by that is under this label of blackness, inside of this label exists a vast array of people in thought, in culture, in, in mannerisms. And so we wanted to have a collection of works that represented this variety of expression, you know? And so I think that's what we got. We got a religious play, we got some illustrations some photographs. We got poems in many different kinds of voices and styles. And uh, yeah, thus the book was born. Yeah. I mean, it's hard for me to kind of pick out my favorites, but the ones that really moved me was, uh, I mean, obviously yours, which I'm going to ask you to read from. Um, there's some photographs here. There's a beautiful photograph of a family here. And I just, there's, I, this is just everything to me. Like yeah. every single piece of that is just so, oh, and the, and the, the, and not only that, but also the technical skill of those photographs as well is just so beautiful. That sepia. I also love the uh, Michael Frazier one, which is, is some kanjis, which mean make home. Um, mm -hmm. My mother says, don't come back to America as you're safer in Japan. And that's an exploration of that. And it's, it's, it's written in prose, but it reads like poetry. It's absolutely. Yeah. Uh, amazing um when women pray and that's tricky because if i read it to you you'd be thinking pray as in pray to the lord or to a to a higher power but actually it's p-r-e-y how an eagle yeah. prays and it's so oh my god i've got goosebumps all over me thinking about that one as well and then also the one about um being rejected from modeling which kind of reflects your experience that you had as well which is francis dyer's um, yeah. on, um, South African quote here, poetry. which I'm just going to read out, which I, I won't read the poem because I want people to go and buy the book. But it's like, quote, you might be pretty in your country, but you're not the pretty that Japan wants. 
And that was a successful white model talking to Francis in Tokyo in 2018. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Um, and it's it's a fun it is is such a good poem. I've read it over and over and over and over and over and over again. And so I think it's a triumph, Marcellus, an absolute triumph. Really do. Thank you and very much. Thank you. You're you're so so very welcome. Um, so I would love for you to read your poem, I am, if that's possible. And then perhaps you oh, can of course tell us it's about possible. the funding that you're seeking. And what you want to do in the future, because I really, I feel a massive gap where Super Deluxe was and -hmm. all that performance that used to, in fact, that's where I've seen you performing with Sam Bennett and the amazing flying machine. And it was such a space of just pure wild eyed creation. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was no kind of borders there, but we've lost that space now. And then of course, with COVID having happened, now I can see something new emerging from you. And um, from from this project, and I'm so interested to hear what happens next and how this can be kind of that that vibe can be continued. How do we do that? Where's the space? What's it? I mean, I just love observing. Well, I have the space oh! at the venue. Where is it? Where is it? <laughs> uh, it's in Daikanyama. There's a yeah. place run by a really old friend of mine, Japanese guy by the name of Shunsuke. Yeah. Who is a percussionist, but also is madly in love with the arts. And so all of the staff, the venue, everybody's, their mind is towards what can we do to further the development of the arts. And so that space is in Daikanyama is like less than a minute from the train Is that the one with the really long name? That's right. Where you did your launch. That's right. Amazing. Um, before you read, can you just tell me what the na- what umoja means and why you chose that Swahili word? Uh, umoja is a Swahili word for unity, and I chose it for a couple of reasons. First, because I just like the sound and the look of it. It looked kind of interesting to me. And yeah. the second was because it represented the spirit of the book. The book is about the unification of this uh, diasporic voice this collection of diasporic voices right it's about bringing those all together into one volume and so Mm. it's made sense to choose the word umoja to me please go ahead i am i am the boat that rocked when the cargo was jettisoned after horizons were gone and the traders could no longer be seen silhouetted against a burning village counting dutch and english gold i am the foot that stomped in the mud of plantations where blistering death consumed the drum, where words were cut from their tongues and stitched back in with unsterilized needles, a new language. I am the welt that burned in hot summer suns on the palms, soles, hands, feet, backs of the beast, worth one-third a whole man but maker of a nation of economic boom, of textiles and tobacco. I am the vessel of a new god, sent from the sons of Abraham, across the Nile to Colosseums where lions feasted on flesh, took Constantine's decree, then passed it on to King James, Gutenberg, and the clan, till the rivers no longer flowed, the winds no longer blew, and the rains no longer gave meaning to her tears. I am the zoot-suited minstrel ducking into speakeasies, anything but silent, My bass beats scream released from the metal made magnificent with the wood and string of the times I am. 
I am the line that stood shuffling, head low, Yasa boss, from the back of a packed house, full of spirits that would eventually possess them, even those who sip sweet water and waste it into exquisite porcelain, while the makers of their mood and the bringers of their food sifted grit from their teeth and swatted flies from the crusty covered seats. I am the uprising, the realization, the hundred years after emancipation, the deacons who defended, the panthers who growled against the gnashing fangs of hell-hounds let loose on liquefied streets amid the voices lifting themselves to sing. I am the bulleted king, parks in prison, those plucked by the wing that Holiday wailed of, the unsolvable equation, the elimination of X. I am the wave of new consciousness, uncovered freedom, the fuel for Scott Heron's untelevised revolution, the last of the poets unafraid to speak, the rage, the swell, the raucous coalition that found fruition despite the ghetto lands. I am the bang-up western of Tookie, the clash of California, the red and blue that brought fear to the white, brown, yellow, black populations that withdrew into deeper denial as the outlaws flung rocks at businessmen and suburbanites who risked their lives for the high. I am the subject of experimentation that lingers long after Tuskegee, somewhere in Harlem, Cleveland, or Watts, where truckloads of brown bricks smack silliness into the federally funded nod of intoxication. I am the yearning burning within the crossroads of Johnson's Howe, the bitches brew bubbling stew that moved from reefer madness, bane of society, white daughters salivating to every society, from Alabama to Aoyama, changing forms, bebop, blues, rock, to German b-boys of Bad Nauheim who are, without knowing, what it is to really be. I am the culmination of things unmentioned but known, the traffic light, the safety pin, the gas mask, the cure for cataracts, the paper punch, the electronic resistor, the dry clean, the solar eclipse, the peanut. I am the forgotten names called buffalo by indigenous people pushed forward to the oil fields. I am the artist, the inventor, the visionary, the entertainer, the athlete, the past, present, future bringer of world culture, the gangster, the drug dealer, the father, the astronaut, the statesman, the wise man, and sometimes the fool. I am the living proof that despite all the Katrinas ignored, I will find a way to survive. So that's my poem, I Am. This poem was written to describe what it means to be Black. And that's why it's written at the very front of the book. It goes from the history of finding ourselves on boats, rocking, becoming the cargo that had been jettisoned, the burning village, and moving through sort of second-class citizenship, being the entertainer of a whole nation, but still not being allowed to, to drink from clean water fountains or to sit in clean toilets, you know what I mean? And it goes from the revolution of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, the changing of American idea where a long time ago, there was this movie called Hemp for Victory or something like that. Maybe I've gotten the title wrong. It was a propaganda video. America tried to dissuade Americans to smoke marijuana. Basically, they were like, it's evil. It's going to first they were like, it's going to make you violent. You're going to want to go out and kill people. But then that didn't work. So they changed the campaign to, and I am not joking at all, marijuana will make your children 
listen to jazz and it will make your daughters want to date black men. This is like a real message that America had put out into America. And all of a sudden people became afraid of marijuana. I'm not, I'm not here to advocate for marijuana. I'm just explaining that line, white daughter salivating. That's what that was about, right? It was about this idea of our existence in the context of that sort of society and what it means, right? And how all of that struggle has taken us through all of those years uh, where we, we, we stood up for emancipation, we took to the streets by any means necessary, and how we are not perfect. Tuki was a LA gangster. He was a guy who was one of the leaders of the crack cocaine uh, epidemic, a very, very horrible figure who went to jail and then tried to reform himself and do all this work to try and help people from prison. But that's part of, because we're human, right? Mm-hmm. Some people do bad shit and that doesn't mean everybody's bad. It's part of who we are. We're sometimes the fool. But despite it all, despite all of this, we will always find a way to survive. Mm-hmm. That was the purpose of the poem, you know. Such a great poem. Thank you um, so much for sharing it with me and with my listeners and also for giving a little bit of texture to that and some historical context to to all of that. Uh, I mean, I could have a whole another two hours with you just talking about that, but we're not going to do that. Um, so thank you. So what's next then, Marcellus? What's next for you? Um, and where can we find uh... you? Next is I'm trying, like I said, to get funding for a continuation of the Umoja project. Uh, What that will entail will be a series of uh, events for performers, a series of exhibitions for uh, photographers and artists, and several more volumes of the book Umoja. Uh, I'm applying to Tokyo Arts Council, they have a, they have a grant. Uh, it's worth about $30,000 or so. And uh, if I'm successful, then I'll be able to finance a couple more years of events and things like that. The reason why I want to do that is because when we had the launch party for Umoja, so many people came to me and said, oh my God, I have been looking for something like this. Uh, now I finally feel like I have a place where oh my, I'm going to make myself cry. <laughs> I finally feel like I have a place where I can feel comfortable and welcomed. Uh, and so many of those voices that I thought it, it's such a waste to have it be just a one-off book launch or promotion for this, you know, it, it I want it to morph into something more into an opportunity for many people to express themselves for as long as we could possibly keep it going, you know? Love it. It just brings me back to that. Like the simple answer is because we are here. It's That's like, right. Oh, yeah. Here. <laughs> That's what it feels like walking into those rooms where you just feel so safe and exactly good and filled with art and words is just such, it's so rare. <laughs> How beautiful yeah. that you've created that. How beautiful that you've created that. So I, encourage everybody to go and find Marcellus. Where do we find you? Is it MarcellusNeely.com or that's it. www.MarcellusNeely.com. No space between Marcellus and Neely. And then if you want to send me a message, you can send me a message through 
the contact me form. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also have a radio show at uh, Shonan Beach FM. And it's every Saturday night from 11 p.m. till midnight. Uh, you can access that through the internet and just click onto the live stream and listen to the show if you like. It's just about exploring music, basically. I don't try. I try not to talk too much, just enough so you know I'm there, and then play a bunch of different tunes. Because so, I just I'm really love check music. That out. As soon as we come up here, <laughs> I'm aware of it. And there are many ways to lead a life, Marcellus. What does that mm-hmm. mean to you? Uh, I think that it means to not be stuck in one version of yourself. Oh. It means to be open to the possibility. We are different people every single moment we step towards the future and away from now. But we're also living in a constant collection of nows. I am who I am now, but I may not be who I am tomorrow, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, Um, 100%. I, I think that what it means is, yeah, just to be open to that transformation, to not be stuck in one single image of yourself. I am Marcellus Neely. I'm a poet. I'm a musical performer. I'm also a professor at a university. I'm a photographer. I'm a father. I was a graphic designer at some point. And, you know, people be like, well, you did all those things. I'm like, yeah, why? Because I had to survive, dude. I have to make money, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and because I really love each and every one of those. Yeah. Why do I have to like stick to one thing just because you think I should identify with that one thing? That's oh, how I feel about it, you know. Just so good. There are a constant collection of nows. And don't Definitely. be stuck in one version of yourself. Amazing. I adore you, Marcellus. Thank you so much for today. We've gone so far over time. I'm so useless at this, but I don't care because I just want to harvest the stories and, and get as much juice out of these. There's so much wisdom locked up in the untold stories of people. And I just mm-hmm. want them to have life. And so that we can all have this kind of common experience together. I don't know if Umoja is still on sale. Go to Toko Joe, Tokyo Poetry Journal. I think that's the place you can get this or MarcellusMovie.com. Actually, you can get it on Amazon or or Barnes and Nobles. That's where I got it. Uh, yeah so beautiful so go and do that and then give it a five star review and follow whoever's the seller of that and um, thank you I believe there are many many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories and it's been absolutely fascinating listening to (laughs) Marcellus's twists and turns today I've known him for some years now ever since we were married and wore degrees together and um, (laughs) and I'm still finding out more and more and more things about him of course so um, I hope there's been some useful stuff in here for you like and subscribe and if if you can drop a comment in to say what you loved about this I would be absolutely delighted. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye, Marcellus. Bye. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this latest legend on the Sarah Furuya Legends podcast. Hop over to sarahfuruya.com where you can find the full complement of uh, Legends interviews and conversations. Also, you can like and subscribe over on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. I absolutely love these interviews and these conversations I have with these people. I don't care about subscribers, if I'm absolutely honest. It just 
podcast helps to get more people over to listen to these fantastic people. I cannot wait for my next interview. I really hope you can get stuck in and find some juice and some delightful little nugget of knowledge or encouragement from these that will help you to create your story and to take your story forward and to weave and dream up and high dream your own story. Buoyed up by the stories of these people, I would call them ordinary, they're not, but these people, these beautiful legends who I've selected to help you on your way and to help me on my way. So please enjoy, share, subscribe. My Facebook page is Sarah Furuya Coaching. My Instagram page is at Sarah Furuya Coaching too. So get into it. Thanks. Bye.